11th hour lecture by Margaret Patton Chapman is about fairy tales. As the mother of a four-year-old daughter, I have been recently reindoctrinated in this form of storytelling. A few months ago, the babysitter came home with a bag of fairy tales from the public library. I did a quick survey of the illustration illustrations to be reminded of the frights, the wicked fairies, the witches, the beasts and goblins, the trolls and enchantresses. The children were often orphaned, captured, starved, poisoned, and often at the hands of women who claimed to be their caretakers. I don't know, I said to my daughter, these might spook you. Please, Mama, she said, I love them. Anyway, Amelia reads them to me. And so I understood she was already under their spell. Now, every night since that first night, we have read a few fairy tales before the lights go out, and I have come to see them in a new way. The protagonists are often young girls, and in spite of their hardships, are clever and witty. They figure out ways to escape, find love, survive, indeed, live happily ever after. They are stories about the most down downtrodden. They are origin stories. They are cosmological in scope, commentary on the human condition. You never get sick of these, do you? I asked last night, closing a volume. My daughter looked at me as earnest as I'd ever seen her. Never, Mama, she said. They are my favorites. And so you can see how at the very earliest of ages, we become enchanted with these fairy tales. Young, young children do, and they continue to entertain us as adults. Margaret Patton Chapman received her MFA from the New School of the Art Institute in Chicago. Her fiction has appeared in Wiggly, Smoke Long, and in Anthology, The Way We Sleep, among others. And her music and arts and reporting have been published in the Independent Weekly and the Austin Chronicle. She is the author of the novella in Flash, Bell and Bargain, published in 2014, as, the par as part of the collection, My Very End of the Universe. Margaret has taught writing as a visiting professor at Indiana University in South Bend, and she is the prose editor for Decomp Magazine. Please join me in welcoming her now. Oh, hi, can everyone hear me with this mic? Great. Um, so thank you so much for coming out today to uh, hear me talk about fairy tales. Uh, thank you so much to Amy um, and Jen and um, the Summer Writers Festival for inviting me to give this talk. Um, fairy tales are something incredibly important to me. I've taught a number of classes in fairy tales. Um, I probably spend too much time reading about fairy tales. Um, and so in this uh, talk today, I'm really going to focus on, a, well, a few things. I'm going to talk about my experience with fairy tales um, and um, a little bit of the history of the literary fairy tale, just a little place where we talk about the, tr the transformation from the oral tradition of fairy tales to literary fairy tale. And then I'm also going to talk quite a bit about the craft of fairy tales um, and how they can impact your writing. Um, when I talk about fairy tales today, I'm mostly talking about what we would consider to be Western European fairy tale traditions. And this is 
mainly because that's those are the kinds of fairy tales that I was exposed to as a child. So the Grimm's Brothers, Hans Christian Andersen, Charles Perrault, John Jacobs, those are the fairy tale collectors that most children uh, in this country get exposed to. They're also ones that Disney makes the movies of. So <laughs> I'm talking about fairy tales in the Western European tradition, but I think that what I'm saying applies also to non-Western fairy tales as well. Um, so if you don't mind, Jen, bring, sorry, <laughs> bringing up the first slide, um, I'll go ahead and get started. So let me tell you a story. Once upon a time, there was a woodcutter who lived with his wife and two children on the edge of a great wood. The family never had enough to eat. One night, looking at their diminished stores, the woodcutter's wife proposed they take the children into the woods and build them a fire, give them some bread, and leave them there. They will never find their way back the mother said. I feel sorry for them, said the woodcutter, but he agreed. The children, awoke, awoken by hunger, were afraid, but they made a plan. The brother collects pebbles in the moonlight. The next day, they're led into the woods. So the slide behind me is from an illustration from Neil Gaiman's version of Hansel and Gretel. The illustration is by the artist Lorenzo Matotti. This story was one of my favorites as a child. Who has not been enchanted by this tale? There are so many childhood fears and fantasies wrapped up in the story. Parents abandoning children to certain death. A candy house cannibalism, the cruel birds who eat their breadcrumb trail. As poet Richard Sykin points out, everyone, everything in this story is so hungry. Once upon a time, I had a magical childhood. I do not mean that it was particularly good or enjoyable. I did not particularly like being a child. I felt like I was being lied to by adults all the time, and that turned out to be true. I lived in a rather ordinary house. Um, sorry, <laughs> let me back up. I lived a rather ordinary childhood in an ordinary house, in as much as any ordinary childhood can be ordinary, with an ordinary amount of fear and cruelty and deprivation and violence, which is to say, not too much, but some. I lived with my mother and father and younger brother in a rather ordinary house on a rather ordinary block in a rather ordinary small city. In the middle of the block, there was a little depression, a gully where a small stream ran behind the houses and a bit of bramble and a few dozen scrubby trees and the ruins of a mysterious house, half a chimney, and a corner of a foundation. But that place seemed like a dark and mysterious woods to me. I was also surrounded by lots of mysterious and magical adults as a child. 
Uh, on my block, there was Ray, the child psychologist, who lived in a giant, dark Victorian, and I would visit him, and he would show me mysterious ink blots and ask me what they meant, and he would give me Capri Suns. Uh, next door to me, there were the sweet and hunched and ancient-seeming Eekses, a white-haired couple in an adorable cottage who let us hide, whether they knew it or not, when we needed to, and offered us colorful candy out of crystal, cut crystal dishes. At the other end of the block, there was the perpetually pinched old lady, Mrs. Arena, whose name compacted to Ms. Arena. <laughs> she would spray us with water when we went on her grass. Um, she would yell at us. She had a barking dog, and I always thought her voice sounded like a bark. Uh, these were the witches and wizards and magical dwarves of my childhood. So I was a small child right on the cusp of the time when it seemed to be that the world became an unbearably scary place for parents of small children. So I was the oldest of eventually four, although my um, other sisters came along much later. But I got to have a childhood of relative freedom and exploration compared to my younger siblings who were much more protected. Um, so I was able to visit the neighbors and go to their house and hear the stories they told. Both of my parents worked, uh, and so as a small child, I spent half my days in a daycare and the other half in the, under the care of a babysitter who I called Nanny. She was a grandmotherly woman, and actually a great-grandmother by the time she was my nanny. She was part lumby. She had incredibly long black hair. She said she had never cut in her life, which she wore in long braids wrapped around her head. She told me stories I don't think most people would tell a child. She showed me the scars where her father had cracked her head open where her husband had hit her with a belt. She told me all the time about the true evil that lurks in the world, about people who kidnap children and do unspeakable things to them. She told me these stories because she thought my mother <laughs> let me have too much freedom. She was worried for me. I was a small, uh, blonde girl, and to her, my blondness made the world more dangerous for me. And this was confirmed for me by the stories I saw, because blonde girls get kidnapped by witches and locked in towers. So she told me these terrible stories, but she also told me folk tales and fairy tales. She told me cat skins and jack tales, and she read me versions of my illustrated fairy tale books and embellished them with her own insights into the nature of big bad wolves and little old witches. So this was my first experience of fairy tales, even before Disney movies, even before VCRs. My little sister watched Disney movies on the VCR over and over again, but when I was a child, we didn't have that yet. And so my experience of stories and the repetition of stories was through Nanny telling me them. 
Uh, the author, Neil Gaiman, says it's impossible to discuss, to discuss how he feels about fairy tales any more than how he feels about his own blood or his spine. And this is some way how I feel. These stories are part of who I am. And my recollection of being in a child is that the world was made up of all of these stories, of parents who dumped their children off in the woods, and parents who worked all the time and weren't home, and princesses who were locked in towers by witches, and child predators in windowless vans, and wolves in the woods, and secret wildness in the middle of a city block, of magic candy cottages, and magic old lady neighbors with tiny crystal bowls full of tiny colorful candies. Can you change this up? So, this indivision of the world between, of the world of magic and the world of pain and kindness and terror and wonder is what child psychologist Bruno Bettelheim calls enchantment. He ascribes it to children whose animistic view of the world in which they are, so animism means that you are ascribing thoughts to things without thoughts. And it's something that comes from this idea that you have not fully separated your ego from the world around you. So children do not fully know of themselves as different from the other. And they go about believing that they can speak to inanimate objects and that they can read minds and that the world is just a story in which they are the center. I think this can be said about writers, too. <laughs> so coming to these stories now as an adult, it is possible to still feel this enchantment. But in order to do so, we need to look at these stories through a slightly different lens. So, what is a fairy tale? Heroes and heroines of fairy tales are non-specific. That's one of the most fundamental aspects of fairy tales. They're a prince, a princess, a hunter, a miller's son. Often they do not have names. When they have names, the names are given to them over the course of the story. Little Red Riding Hood was not named Little Red Riding Hood when she was born. She was named Little Red Riding Hood when she got a Little Red Riding Hood. She is named after an article of clothing. Same with Puss in Boots. He wears boots. That's his name now. <laughs> Even the most famous fairy tale, I think of all time, Cinderella, is not named Cinderella. She's not even named Ella, which I think a lot of kids these days think she's named. Who knows her name? The name given to her by her mother is a mystery and forgotten. Her mother dies. The name is disappears. And the name we know her by and we know her story by is the insult that's given to her by her stepsisters, the girl that sleeps by the cinders. So these nameless, non-specific heroes happen into their stories. One difference between myth and fairy tale, according to, um, to Bettelheim, is that in myth, heroes are fated, right? 
you pissed off the gods, or your mom did, or Zeus slept with your mom, or you did something really bad and killed your father, and you know, but you couldn't help it. You there's from from the moment of the beginning of a mythic story, the things that happen to you are outside of your control. You have no choices. You're fated. In fairy tales, ordinary miller sons and princesses and soldiers happen into stories. They have choices. At least someone has a choice along the way. They don't end up locked in a tower because of anything that the gods fated for them, but because their dads were really bad dads, usually, right? Poor, the poor Miller's daughter in Rumpelstiltskin, why does she end up in this castle under pain of death to do something she has no ability to do, except for that her terrible father told the king she could do it. Why is Rapunzel in the tower? Because the father stole the lettuce. But if these people hadn't had such bad dads, that stuff wouldn't have happened to them. Um, so in fairy tales, the story can happen to anyone, as if by accident. Fairy tales also often involve magic, although less magic than you think. We think of these stories as super magical. We think of them as, um, as a defining characteristic of fairy tales, this magic. But the magic is really small. This is not wizards battling to save the world. This is the magic of industry. So in the Grimm's version of Cinderella, Cinderella calls down birds to sort lentils. That's the magic she has, lentil sorting magic. Um, in donkey skins, there's magical dresses that are made. Uh, in the shoemaker and the elves, magical shoes are made. There's a lot of magical making of clothing that happens. In, in uh, Rumpelstiltskin, the magic simply changes straw into gold. This is not magic that defeats evil. In addition, in fairy tales, there's almost always a transformation. So sometimes these transformations are like a person is turned into a swan, or six people are turned into swans, or three girls are turned from swans into women. There's a lot of swans that things people get transformed into and out of. Um, a frog is turned into a prince. Or really, a prince is turned into a frog is turned back into a prince. Um, but there's also, aside from these like magical transformations of form, which happen quite often, there's lots of transformations of status. That's a huge thing that happens in fairy tales, is the characters are changed from beginning to end. So obviously the, the most common one is Cinderella. Cinderella goes, starts off as a daughter of a wealthy man. Then she's transformed into a servant. And then she's transformed into a princess. But also, even in Hansel and Gretel, I don't know if you guys remember the ending of this story, but after they push the wish into the fire, they magically find out that her candy house is full of treasure. 
and they take the treasure and they fill their pockets full of it. Then they have this weird episode where they have to sing to a duck to cross a river. (laughs) Then they make their way home, which is also sort of strange because the whole time it's like they couldn't find their way home and suddenly once they've killed the witch, it's like, oh, we're rich now, it's easy to find home. (laughs) So they go home and yay, their mom is dead, their dad is still alive, that's great, and now they're rich and they'll never be hungry again. So they start out the unwanted children of an incredibly poor and hungry family, and they end the story as the very wealthy children of a father who somehow managed to get rid of that meddling wife while the kids were away. (laughs) So these transformations happen all the time in stories. The other thing about fairy tales is that they often begin with an invocation. Once upon a time, once there was, once. This shortcut does the work of world building for the fairy tale. So the image behind me is from Joseph Cornell. It's the pink palace. Cornell is, um, he does collage and he does um, these shadow boxes that are very beautiful, and I think it exemplifies this sort of other timeness, because when is once upon a time? It's not now. It's then. And when is then? Who knows? It's when these things were possible. So where do these stories come from? There's a bit of a mystery about where these stories come from, and there's a few different ideas about it. Um, They're definitely connected to an oral storytelling tradition. They're also connected to a literary storytelling tradition. So may we have the next slide, please, Tim? So folklorist Jack Zipes and Marina Warner, who are like probably the most famous fairy tale uh, scholars in America, situate fairy tales in a history of female storytelling. So they think that a lot of these stories originally in the oral tradition come from a time when women were probably telling these stories to each other, not to children. And you can see in fairy tales remnants of this tradition. You can understand how they got to this place. So one of the things we find a lot in fairy tales is magic of industry and particularly women's industry. There is no coincidence that spinning happens a lot in fairy tales. So before the magic of technology and the ability to have machine-made thread and machine-woven cloth. Everything you wore had to be made by thread or yarn that was spun by someone, probably a woman, almost certainly a woman. And so much of women's time in the pre-modern age, especially in Western Europe, was spent spinning. It was like what you did in your off time. You just spun. So it's also no coincidence that when we talk about spinning and spinning tales, 
you can imagine, you can picture in your mind almost women sitting around spinning. Now, the picture behind me, which is um, from a shadow puppet show by Kate Scowl, um, of a, a retelling of um, Sleeping Beauty shows a spinning wheel. But before the spinning wheel, women spun with drop spindles. So it was just the pointy part, and then you did the wheel part with your hands. And so it took forever. But you could talk. You could tell stories. And so you see in stories lots of concerns of women. One of the concerns you see a lot, especially women in a pre-modern time, is what happens to children whose mothers die. When you think about child mort uh, female mortality rates in childbirth, the idea that you would be concerned about dying and your children being raised by another woman and what she might do to them, you can see those fears come out in these stories. Zipes also points out to us that there is sort of this idea of like mother goose or the, the old woman who's unmarried who's telling the stories. And what is the word we have for old unmarried women? Spinsters. Do you know why? Because it's one of the only ways in the pre-modern world that a woman could make money on her own. So if you wanted to not get married, if you wanted to support yourself, you did it by spinning. So from this oral tradition, we get in fairy tales a lot of these archetypal things that show up over and over again. Um, and they're connected to this idea of trying to make a tale easy to remember. So you have events that happen in triplicate all the time. Three pigs, three dresses. You have the repetition of language, I'll huff and puff and blow your house down and then I'll huff and puff and blow your house down again. You have the youngest and longest, you have dead mothers, orphans, stepmothers, and you also have these elements of strict feudalism. So the, the characters in fairy tales are kings, princes, princesses, some craftspeople, millers, bakers, and then a bunch of peasants. So eventually, these stories in the early modern age get written down. And they are originally actually collected mostly by female um, storytelling collectors. Um, and as soon as the printing press is invented, they get printed and distributed. This is an age before copyright and intellectual property laws. So if anyone read a good story, they'd be like, I can just reprint that and change it a little bit maybe and reprint it again. So one thing that you see in fairy tales is there's dozens of versions of these stories. And partially, we think that's because it comes from an oral tradition where these people are, people are just telling the stories again and again. And partially, it's because you have the introduction of printing. So we have dozens of Cinderella's, dozens of swan princesses, Rumpelstiltskin, Tit-Tim-Tot, multiple Pied Pipers. There's an amazing one called The Magician of Avancina, where he doesn't play a pipe. Instead, he teaches the mice to conduct their own funerals. It's very weird. So one question is, like, why do these stories get told over and over again? And why do some stories appear to be repeated and catch our collective imagination and others fall away? And I don't have a really great answer for that. But 
I, I do know that you can see elements of story tales, all of fairy tales, all over the place in contemporary world. And that's not just like TV shows called Once, like Once Upon a Time or the like Hansel and Gretel movie version where they're like, like warriors or things like that. But you find them um, in history books. You find them in songs. You find them in soap operas. You also find them in contemporary realism in fiction. So in there's a fairy tale called from Sweden called the Swan Maiden, and in it, these this hunter is um, hunting down by a bay, and these three swans land, and they take off their feathery attire, and they turn out to be naked ladies. And he watches the naked ladies swim, and he falls in love with one, and he steals her cape so that she can become his wife. Um, in John Updike's story, A&P, which is very famous, you may be familiar with it, his narrator watches three young women in their bathing suits enter the A&P, and he falls in love with one, and he tries to conspire to find out how he can gain her. He fails. In Flannery O'Connor's A Good Man is Hard to Find, another really famous story, um, there's a grandmother, unnamed, who keeps saying, let's not go that way, let's not go that way, let's not go that way. And what happens? She gets eaten by a big bad wolf. I mean, she gets killed by the misfit. And so does her whole family. But you can see these archetypes of stories, even in stuff that is totally considered to be realistic and not magical at all. So back to the sort of definition of fairy tales. One of the last things that people think of when they think of fairy tales are that these, is that these are stories, moral stories, for children. So I'm going to tell you a very quick fairy tale. It's called The Rosebud. Can you switch this down? There was once a poor woman who had two little girls. The youngest was sent to the forest every day to gather wood. Once, when she had been gone a long way before finding any, any, a beautiful little child appeared who helped her to pick up the wood and carried it home for her. Then, in a twinkling, he vanished. The little girl told her mother, but the mother wouldn't believe her. Then one day she brought home a rosebud and told her mother the beautiful child had given it to her and said he would come again when the rosebud opened. The mother put the rosebud in water. One morning, the little girl didn't get up and get out of bed. The mother went and found the child dead, but looking very lovely. The rosebud opened that very morning. What is the moral meaning of that tale? The child dies, the rose opens. There is a symmetry, certainly, there is magic. It's a sad story, but it's a story of a fulfilled promise. A child whose mother doesn't believe her is the moral believe your children when they say magical things have happened to them or they died. In the Italian version of uh, Puss in Boots, which comes to us from usually in the French version, uh, Charles Perrault, um, 
was the collector of the French version, and he loved to append morals to everything. And his morals are always so trite. They're just, it's like every moral is like, be good, be a good girl. Um, and in the Italian version of Puss in Boots, the uh, Italian collector Carlo Conditi uh, makes fun of that, and he notes that this tale is very useful if you happen to be a cat. <laughs> so if these stories aren't moral stories for children, what are they doing? So I think that they are serving as what object relations theorist Donald Winnicott calls intermediate area of experience. I'm going to try to unpack this real quick for you. So in Winnicott's idea, children and adults, we are always in the process of and struggle of trying to accept reality. Back to what um, Bruno Bettelheim said, that idea of separating your ego from the world, of realizing that you're, you're you and you're alone and you're going to die. We're constantly in that struggle. And so he says that art is a kind of cultural experience which is not challenged and gives us relief from the strain of relating to reality. So I think that's what fairy tales do. They give us relief from relating the strain of relating to reality. Fairy tales are places where you no longer have to work out your feelings about an understanding of death and darkness and cannibalism and abandonment. It's a place where you can sit in unknowing, holding contradictory ideas. It is a place of horror and beauty. I think in fairy tales we find three of these ideas that are listed um, on this slide. So Victor Hugo took Immanuel Kant's idea of the sublime and he transformed it. He said the sublime was a beauty beyond understanding, a beauty that moved towards terror, a combination of the grotesque and the beautiful. You can see that in Hugo's work, certainly. Rudolf Otto has the idea of the numinous, which is related to the sublime. The numinous is the thing that terrifies us and fascinates us at the same time. That candy house in the woods. And also, what we find in fairy tales, I think, is John Keats' idea of negative capability. Keats thought that beautiful poetry, beautiful things could access the sublime, could have this idea of the beautiful and the terrible, and that the negative capability was the ability to sit with these contradicting ideas. The ability to sit in unknowing. The ability to not reconcile. So in these stories, there is the idea of beauty and horror. These are stories, as Jen pointed out in her introduction, of darkness and anguish. Even Gassidaf in their most shimmering Disney princess ball gowns, these are still stories of children whose mothers die, who fathers forget them or barter them to witches or beasts, whose stepmothers and captors lock them away or try repeatedly to kill them. Somehow, we don't think about this when we think about the Disney versions. 
<laughs> when, when our daughters dress up in little, as princesses, we don't think about the horror and trauma that these, girl, these girls and women go through in their stories. So when you wish upon a star, your nightmarish story of abuse and neglect will be transformed into happily ever after. That's what Disney princesses offer us. Yet even in fairy tales, these stories don't always have happy endings. Hansel and Gretel come home. They're rich. Their mother's dead. Yay? So fairy tales ask questions and they don't answer them. Can you change the slide again? So, why in the rosebud does a child die? How do Hansel and Gretel find their way home again? In the Swan Brothers, why does the girl, this is so, I don't know if you're familiar with this story, but um, this princess, her brothers are all transformed into swans, and she learns from them that she can transform them back if she sews them shirts, but she has to be silent. Why? Why can't she talk while she's showing these, sewing these shirts? Also, she has six years to sew them. That's a long time. Also, she doesn't finish. Why does Rumpelstiltskin want that baby? I don't know. He's dancing around in the woods around the cauldron, singing about wanting that baby. I don't think for good things. So fairy tales leave things out. They're full of what is called a lacuna, a skipped part. And these skipped over parts leave space for enchantment. Kate Bernheimer calls these skipped parts this openness. After the poet Dryden, she calls this the fairy way of writing. In her essay, Fairy Tale is Form, Form is Fairy Tale, Bernheimer describes four fundamental aspects of this fairy way of writing, this space of questioning, this lack of answers. Yeah, the next one. So these are flatness, abstraction, intuitive logic, and normalized magic. So I'm going to go over these briefly. So flatness is the absence of psychological depth in characters. We don't know what these people are thinking about what's happening to them in fairy tales, right? Sometimes we know they're scared, like Hansel and Gretel are scared. Um, but we don't know what that Miller's daughter is thinking. She's scared. But then what happens when she marries the king who for three days was threatening to kill her every day? Abstraction in fairy tales is the lack of detail. The child in the rosebud is called beautiful. What did that child look like? No idea. Beautiful. Abstraction gives us space to imagine our own understanding of beauty. When there are concrete details in fairy tales, you see the same things happen over and over again. There's very few colors in fairy tales. Red, black, 
transparent, gold. That's about it. So you get glass slippers and mirrors and an apple and a red riding hood. But there's not a lot of like description of objects. Bernheimer talks about intuitive logic of fairy tales, which is the idea that in a fairy tale, one thing happens after another, and there's not a reason why. There's no reason why in, in Hansel and Gretel, suddenly they have to sing a song to a duck at the end. Um, there's no reason why in the Rosebud that she gets a flower. There's no reason why we're told, there's no reason why the flower is going to open. So things happen. One thing happens and another thing happens. You're called to magic. There's this invocation. You know things are going to happen once you start with Once Upon a Time, and then you just have to go with it, right? And the other thing that I mentioned before is this very, this normalized magic, this very ordinary magic that's happening all around that doesn't really do much. It doesn't really do that much stuff. It transforms people into animals, does some transforming, but mostly it's not... It's not big deal magic. So I want to give you um, a couple examples of these things in contemporary uh, literature. But I realized I left the examples in my bag, so I'm just going to walk over there for one second. <laughs> So these, these things do this, do this work that is like what we're told not to do in Fiction 101, which is that they tell, they don't show. The child is beautiful. We don't know. We know nothing about that child. We only know the child's gender because we're given a gender pronoun at one point in time. But aside from that, we don't know why. We don't know what. We're told Hansel and Gretel are hungry. Everyone in their house is hungry. We don't feel the hunger. We're not shown the hunger. We're just told that they're hungry. So this kind of abstraction can work in contemporary literature as well. So the first example I'm going to give you is from um, Train Dreams, this book by Dennis Johnson that I'm actually teaching this, this week. Um, at a certain point, the main character, Robert Grenier, his daughter who has disappeared, um, and he thinks is dead. He thinks she's been killed in a fire. Um, he has an interaction with a feral child who shows up. Here's, here's what he says. The child's eyes sparked greenly in the lamplight like those of any wolf. Her face was that of a wolf, but hairless. Kate, he said, is that you? But it was. Nothing about her told him that. He simply knew it. So he doesn't give us any explanation. We don't get any description other than a hairless face that this feral wolf-like child who showed up is his daughter. He just tells us, and we have to believe him. And in that space of having to believe, of being told, is enchantment. 
is magic. One more quick example. This is an example of um, from an even more realistic story. So this is from um, Nell Zink's The Wall Creeper, which is, um, I don't know if you guys read it, but a really amazing book. So this is just the first two sentences. I was looking at the map when Stephen swerved, hit the rock, and occasioned the miscarriage. Immediately obvious was my sticky forehead. This is an amazing example, I think, of this intuitive logic and this abstraction. We don't know what happened. Suddenly there's a miscarriage. Suddenly there's a sticky, a sticky forehead. We're in the middle of a story, and we haven't been given any help along the way. We just have to go with it. So what can fairy tales offer our fiction? Well, they offer us a number of things. Let me switch the slide again. The importance of change and transformation. Things need to change. That makes stories exciting. A move away from answering the relentless why towards letting narratives sit in question and contradiction. And telling, not showing. No one says, show me a story. I'm going to tell you one more quick story. Once upon a time, this past Sunday morning, walking the path by the old state capitol, I came upon a fledgling robin in the grass. I stopped because the little bird called to me. Help, it said, its orange throat wide, its thin beak yellow and bright against the tall grass. The bird looked at me and called help in the shrill and terrifying language of birds. There are moments when the planes of meaning in our average lives intersects with the fairy way. Here's the thing about a fledgling robin. She will hop in the grass for a few days, and her parents will come down and feed her and watch over her and chase away any predators, and eventually the young bird will be strong enough to fly. Or the parents will die, and she will die. This is the way of the world full of chaos. But in fairy tales, there's a third way. The bird calls out for help, and some magical creature helps it. There is a price, perhaps. A bargain is met. Perhaps the magical creature is only a child or a woman who wants a child, and the bird will return and grant wishes to its helper. In the real world, there is no reason to help the bird, because there's no help that can be given. The bird will live, or the bird will die. But in the moment of calling out, in the moment of contemplating response to the call, there's the world of enchantment, of story. The bird says, without knowing what she is saying, step into the place where you can be magic. The contemporary novel is full of this reckoning. It is full of trying to help the bird and failing. Nabokov said great novels are above all great fairy tales, and what he meant is that 
novels call their characters out of nowhere to do or reject magic, just as inexplicably as the heroes and heroines of fairy tales are called, not because they're fated, but because they're in a story. By allowing the fairy way of writing into our stories, we open them up to the possibility of the sublime and negative capability, the place of relief from reality and of Thanks. I'm happy to answer questions if anyone has any questions. Yes. What happened to the bird? What happened to the bird? So I walked back later and the bird was no longer there. But I really, I read a lot about birds. I was like, what do I do for this bird? And it was just looking at me like, weep, weep, help. And like, um, but it was like, don't, I mean, I don't know. Everyone said, don't help the bird. Either the parents help the bird and she lives, or the parents don't help the bird and she dies. You help the bird, she dies, most likely. So, yeah. We don't know. That's the place of unknowing. What happened to the bird? She's either alive or she's dead. Yes? She asked what the market for writing children's fairy tales is. I do not know a good answer to that question. I know that there is an explosion of fairy tale-based fiction and... Um, well, fairy tale based fiction for adults. I mean, you're seeing it all over the place. But I, unfortunately, I don't know very much about children's literature, so I don't know the answer to that question. But um, I also um, edit for a journal called the Fairy Tale Review, which is was run by Kate Bernheimer, who I talked about a lot in that. Um, and we get you know hundreds of submissions um, all the time of people writing literary based fairy tales. And then the Fairy Tale Review also publishes. I mean, they're published all over the place now, but it's, if you like writing fairy tale-based fiction for adults, you are living in the best time ever, except for maybe, like, 19th century Germany. <laughs> Any other questions? Yes. Well, you know, it's, I mean, what does getting it right mean? So these stories have so many iterations. There's so many versions of these stories. There's not a right version of the story. So, like, a lot of people, when I talk about Cinderella, they'll be like, oh, in the, in the original Cinderella, there's, like, that horrible thing where she, they, the stepsisters cut their feet off, feet off and they get their eyes pecked out, which is the Grimm's version. But the Grimm's version is not as old as the Perot version, which is the sweet version, which is not as old as the Jim... Jim Bantista version, which is the Italian version where Cinderella kills her own mother. So what's the, I mean, do they get it right? Could they be darker? I mean, obviously I kind of would be into that, but <laughs> they make a lot of money and kids love them, so they get that right. And they expose people to these stories. Any other questions? There's a reference here today covering the cat. Is that one and two, or is that one, two, and three about the bird? Oh, like is the bird alive, or is the bird dead? Or is the bird, or is the, or is the bird, is the bird unknown? Yeah, the bird is magic. Yes, birds, birds are generally magic. Yes. Yes. 
Oh yeah, so I, I'd love to. Um, so the question was good fairy tale based fiction or novels to look at. So a book I teach all the time, which I love, is actually a collection of short stories that's called My Mother, She Killed Me, My Father, He Ate Me. That is based on a Grimm's fairy tale called The Juniper Tree, in which that's a song that gets sung by a bird, because that's what actually happens to one of the main characters. Um, and in that collection, and the editor of that collection is Kate Bernheimer. She's pretty ubiquitous in this stuff. Um, I mean, there's, I don't know, 40 short stories that are spectacular. Um, a couple of authors who have a number of stories that are fairy tale based uh, or, or, or novels, um, Kelly Link. This, this name's a little harder. I love her work, Sarah Shunlian Bynum. So it's, I think, S H U N L. I-E-N, and then the last name is Bynum, B-Y-N-U-N. She went to Iowa, I think. Um, yeah, and if you, if you look at that, that collection of short stories, I mean, most of the authors in there have additional work that's fairy tale based so that's a really good primer for that, if you're interested in finding more of this fiction. Not to promote myself, but I also have a fairy tale based <laughs> work. So if you look me up, you can find more of my work. And my novella is is sort of based on the Little Mermaid and the Swan Princess, as well as other stuff. So, yeah. Any other questions? Thanks for asking great questions. Thanks for listening to this talk, and thank you so much for coming out today. I'm also happy to answer questions, you know, after it's over if you don't want to ask them from the crowd. Thanks again.